Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by WealthManagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of WealthManagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors and financial services professionals. Guests uh, join me to talk about their journey dealing with a struggle and how they found healing. My um, guest today is Justin Reckers. He's the lead advisor at Fonte Financial Advisors and also CEO of Wellspring Divorce Advisors in Carlsbad, California. Justin, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Diana. It's a pleasure. So we often talk on this podcast about problems that are not particularly specific to the wealth management industry, um, you know, illnesses, addiction, things like that. Um, but you know, one issue that is sort of more specific to advisors is having to disclose on your broker check events that aren't necessarily tied to working with clients, but, you know, personal financial events. Um, and so that's something that uh, has happened to Justin. These things, they can sometimes carry a bad connotation, even if they don't speak to, to one's ability to manage money or provide financial advice. Um, you know, a lot of advisors are, are forced to disclose these things from their past and can kind of come back and haunt them. Um, Justin, of course, has always been transparent on his U4 about his troubles, which included a short sale on a home by his former wife, an employment separation, and tax liens. But, you know, despite the disclosures, those things hurt his career a bit and, you know, brought him to the to the brink of bankruptcy. Um, but it all started with this short sale on his former home and something that he really didn't have anything to do with and had no control over. So tell me a little bit about the events that, you know, led up to your money problems. Sure. Yeah, I was a young man in love while in college and uh, got engaged uh, before I had actually graduated. My, my fiance at the time was a year ahead of me in school and mm -hmm. was able to essentially get a transfer through her employer at the time to move to Southern California, which is where she was originally from and much of her family had lived. So um, I do thank her for having brought me to Southern California from much colder Columbus, Ohio. But so we got very better place before. to be much better Absolutely. place to be. <laughs> and I'm happy to still be here, in fact. So so we uh, decided we were going to move to Southern California. And I was interning at a multi-billion dollar RIA at the time while I was finishing up my my college degree, but decided uh, regardless of what happened with the potential job opportunity there, I was going to move to California with my fiance. So we actually bought a house in Southern California out in what we call the Temecula Valley area. This mm -hmm. is uh, circa 2003. And that was actually before I had finished my, my bachelor's degree. We purchased our first home 
if anybody knows Temecula Valley at that time, it was, we bought there because it was the only place we could afford. It was the high flying days of the California real estate market. And, um, so I put myself in a situation where, uh, I lived very far away from any potential job opportunity I had, uh, relative to being a financial advisor in Southern California. And we lived there uh, two and a half years or so. And then decided, oh, it's time to buy a bigger house. Got honestly got caught up in the the mm-hmm. the times relative to buying bigger houses and thinking you're gonna continue to make money off of the home that you purchase. And you know, I was twenty three, twenty-four years old at the time. So got caught up in that, bought a, a second house uh with her, and after we bought our second place, we separated uh, about six months after so that. So um mm. This was, I had already started at that stage in my career specializing in divorces. And of course, this was the first one I was going to go through myself. Um, yeah. And I will say, you know, in the end of all this, I think the most important thing for anybody to take away from, from my talking to you today is that uh, you always got to try and take your own advice because the biggest thing I didn't do was take my own advice throughout many of these things. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard so, though. Um Yeah. Absolutely. When you're in this so, situation, it's hard. It, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's trying to separate in a amicable manner and facilitate the things that she wanted at the time when we when we separated, which is that she wanted to keep that home that we had purchased, and uh, for mm-hmm. me to be able to have a better lifestyle, I needed to move south into San Diego, which was I was driving an hour and a half each way uh, from mm-hmm. my home with her to my office in in Del Mar, down in San Diego County, for the couple of years that I was doing it, and. I totaled you, two you actually, automobiles. Like, yeah, you got into a couple car accidents. <laughs> yeah, back in those days, the traffic was was nasty. You know, I was driving an hour and a half each way. Both of them, both of those automobile accidents were sandwich accidents. So there were four oh, or five gosh. cars involved each time, and yeah, you know, turned into neck injury that I still have today as well. And yeah, I mean, the first. Uh, the thing that I ever ran into relative to my professional career was a was a result of of that relationship, that breakup, and that she did keep the house. We agreed that she was going to hold me harmless from the mortgage debt associated with it and any other expenses for that matter. I knew at the time already that when when you go through divorces, you can say you hold someone harmless from a from a debt that would otherwise be considered marital or community. I knew that from my business, but that even if you say that in a legal document, the the lenders don't care. You know, if your name's on the document, on the borrowing document, the deed of trust, whatever the situation is, you're still going to be liable for it in the lender's eyes. Mm. Hmm. That's good to so, know. Yeah. So, you know, four or five years after we separated, uh, she ended up short selling the house in 2011, I think it was, which was mm-hmm. uh, when I got my first disclosure on my on my record. And I had I had nothing that I could do about it. I mean, I wasn't wasn't in a situation where I could write a, a three hundred thousand dollar check to pay the difference between what she owed on the house and what it could actually sell for. So it turned into a, a short sale, which back in those days was was pretty common. Um, we even had uh, federal laws put on the books in the Bush administration to take what otherwise would have been taxable income via the forgiveness of debt and basically forgive at least the tax liability associated with it to help people in the in the real estate crisis back then. Yeah. So she did she did what you call cash for keys and uh the mortgage lender uh basically gave her a check in exchange for her leaving P 
peacefully and not ripping copper pipes out of the walls, which is what people were doing back then. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a shame that that something like that has to go on your record, um, you know, for the public to see. Yeah, I believe it's on my record for 10 years, although officially anything on broker check, I believe, never goes away. But in terms mm-hmm. of me having to disclose it, I believe I have 10 years in terms of gotcha. how long I have to do it. Yeah. And so what um, happened after your first divorce? I know um, you were still working for the firm in San Diego, kind of trying to be a partner there. What happened next? Yeah, so I have uh, kind of one of those fairly common stories that you would hear talked about by relatively young advisors and that I started my career at a place where I was essentially an eat-what-you-kill advisor. And uh, so I got a percentage of my revenue that I produced. And uh, while I was there, I started my, my divorce business, which I bill hourly for my time and work specifically with people during divorces no investment management or anything like that involved in it, but started a separate business entity, which became very successful. And we ended up creating a separate business entity uh, to basically run that business through. So it wasn't through the existing RIA at that time. Uh, I started there in 2004, I want to say. Yeah. So probably like spring of 2004. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, did really well. I eventually um, kind of I pivoted the divorce practice into something that was just designed to be an hourly billing model, like a lot of people are doing these days, into mm-hmm. something that also was a a prospecting tool. In other words, sure. uh, yeah. I was starting my wealth management side of the business, and a lot of my clients ended up in the in the divorce business becoming my wealth management clients as well, because you know you build a relationship with someone, you help them through the hardest time of their lives going through a divorce, the biggest financial transaction of most lives as well. They learn to trust you and ultimately, you know, they, they want to continue working with you. So came to realize that pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, So I I came to realize that pretty quickly and was, was able to start my wealth management practice really off of the back of my hourly divorce business that I, that we had created as well. I was there from Oh four until probably 2013 before I started getting a little disenfranchised by the situation with the business. And when I say it's kind of a standard story, it was, uh, you know, two older partners, two, two men who had been in partnership with each other for probably 20 years by the time I joined. And they were kind of on the, the downswing, I guess you would say of, of their careers. They weren't actively trying to bring in new clients. They were happy with what they had. Um, and I was getting, the itch to become a partner at that point, you know? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since you were involved in a lot of growth, uh, at the firm, right? Yeah. I mean, at at the time that I started getting the itch, as I said, it was, I was probably 90% of all of the new business for the firm and plus the divorce business revenue, which was separate, but still part of the bigger picture. And it, I, I got to the point where I, again, like a lot of people say to themselves, well, where is my future going to go with this business? So I started telling them, here's some things that I think would be better for the business, um, Mm -hmm. better for the clients, better for, for productivity, for profitability, so on and so forth, putting in my, my two cents. And for the most part, it really didn't get anywhere. It was, it was more of a, thanks for your opinion. Um, we'll think about it. And a lot of it, just really didn't sink in and end up being able to change the business. And then I also eventually got to the point where I said, look, 
I'm a big enough part of this business at this point. I really think I deserve to be given an opportunity to become a partner. Mm. And yeah. that I won't say that the, the, the existing partners at the time were averse to that. I think they were not quite sure how to do it. And by extension, averse to it because they thought it was going to cause them tax consequences. They were going to lose control, whatever the reasons are that the the older partners have across firms all over the country. But in the end, I I did get to a point where I said I, I need to be a partner or I'm going to have to leave. And their response effectively was, "We'll give you what's called a a profits interest in the company." Mm-hmm. Which, which was not what I was looking for. And I'll explain it to anybody who doesn't know. When, when you're offered a profits interest partnership, it essentially means that you have an interest in the company only to the extent that it grows from the level at which you become a profits interest partner. And for me, as I said, I was already creating 90% of the growth in the company as it was. So mm. to myself, I'm saying, well, why would I take on the added risk associated with it with very little expectation of additional income or, or gain out of it other than the income and gain that I personally create, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I know, you know, sort of during this time when you were sort of growing that firm and, uh, starting the, the divorce franchise business, you got married a second time and had two kids, uh, you know, kind of fast forward. And so what, I guess what happened, um, with that marriage? Yeah, so I, uh, my first wife and I divorced in 2007. I got uh, remarried in February of 2009, so uh, roughly 18 months between uh, divorce and remarriage. The, my second wife was actually an administrative assistant at the firm that I worked at that I was just talking about. Um, mm-hmm. no, no funny business, just so you know, no funny business while we were working <laughs> together, but we, you know, she basically told me the, the first time that we had a date, she's like, I, I always respected the way you talked about your ex-wife, even when you were going through the divorce process, you know, hmm. like never spoke badly about her. And yeah. you know, it was, it is what it is like, move on, be amicable, be, be good people. Right. So always trying to take the higher road. So we start dating shortly after my, my, uh, my first divorce and get married relatively quickly. Uh, we'll say part of that was cause I really wanted to have children of my own. And, mm-hmm. you know, even though I don't have the biological clock that, that women do per se, I was like, I, I want to, I, this is something I want to do. And this is a woman that I can see doing it with. So we got married again, less, probably less than 18 months after I got divorced the first time. And, uh, we bought a house within three, four months of, getting married. Five months after we got divorced, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, eight months after I was, well, nine months, I should say, after I was diagnosed with MS, we had our first child. So Mm. we went really quick (laughs) and you know, that at the time I didn't think anything about it. Like, why would I take my time at this point? I know what I want. I know this is someone I want to be with. I know I want to have kids. I'm doing well in business. Why take it slow? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So we did everything really quickly. And uh, yeah, so my first child uh, was born in June of 2010. So uh, what, 14 months after we got married and 11 months after I was diagnosed with MS, we actually did go through the process of deciding whether we should still have kids after Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with MS because it's a, you do have a hereditary predisposition to the disease. Yeah. 
Right. Decided to not let us hold, let it hold us back and, and went for it. And so now I have two kids. So they're now uh, fifth grade, third grade, 10 and eight doing great or awesome, awesome kids with, with my now second ex-wife. So she and I went through quite a lot relative to our, our breakup, which started in 2013. So September of 2013, that was right around the time I mentioned before, where I was also considering what is my, my professional future, you know, what, what, where was I going to go with my, my then business partners who were kind of not willing to make me a full partner? And do I go out on my own? Do I find some other opportunity to partner with somebody else? So I had a lot going on, I, sh- I would say, at that point. Yeah, you were kind of at a fork in the road in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I know that what happened sort of with the settlement uh, agreement with your um, second ex-wife, and how did that kind of affect your finances? Yeah, very, very long portion of the conversation. So uh, as I mentioned, we separated in, in 2013. We did try and uh, reconcile once uh, for the benefit of the kids and stuff. So we officially, officially separated in January of 2014 after our reconciliation attempt failed. Lots of stuff mentally, emotionally happening for her at the time that really just didn't make it possible for us to to get to that reconciliation. We tried very hard, but uh, um, there was some some addiction problems, some mental, emotional problems that I'm happy to say these days have been worked out for her. But at the time, it was a mountain that we could not summit, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so sure. we officially went down the path of getting the divorce done and were officially divorced in April or May of 2014. Um, as I said, I'm in the divorce business, so I basically put together a settlement proposal for her one that I thought was was not just very fair, but also very generous to her. My my goals for it were to to basically live up to the promises that I had made while we were married to some extent, in that we had agreed she would be a stay-at-home mother to, to our two children, uh, at least until my youngest got to first grade, who at the time we separated was one year old. So... Mm-hmm. My, my settlement proposal to her was that I pay her a, what we call a non-modifiable amount of spousal support or alimony, mm-hmm. which means that regardless of whether one of us wants to change the dollar amount or the duration or anything like that, the court doesn't even have the jurisdiction to make the change. And yeah. I structured it in a way that she had what I perceived to be enough money to keep the home that we owned, be able to afford it pay her basic living expenses and pay for the basic living expenses for my kids um, until my daughter got to first grade, who again was one at the time. So I proposed to her that I pay roughly $85,000 a year in non-modifiable alimony. Um, so it works out to seventy-one fifty a month-ish, which was enough to cover what she needed for sure. And she agreed to it. She took, took it to an attorney for, for an opinion and whatnot. And the attorney endorsed it and she agreed to it. So we we were able to, despite the the problems that we had while married and when we were originally separating, we were able to get our our divorce settlement done relatively easily. Certainly there was plenty of drama in between, which I'm not going to talk about with you today, but, um, there was plenty of drama in between, but we, we got through it. We ultimately amicably separated things. She, I, 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 uh, arranged the situation also that she got to keep the house that we owned together so that my kids could stay there. And then she got that amount of alimony spousal support that I, that I mentioned. And it was for, uh, roughly five years. Uh, and we were only married for four and a half years. So 
you know, typically in California, you pay alimony for if you're married that long for about half the length of your marriage. So I could have been off the hook in two, two and a half years. But, um, you know, I was I wanted to be simultaneously generous as well as take care of my children. That was my most important thing. Yeah. And so, I mean, I want to I want to get to how you kind of got through these hard times. But um, let's skip ahead a little bit. I know you you went to another firm. Um, and became, you know, you joined another farm firm as a partner, a, another divorce practice, and you know we don't have to name names or anything, but um, you kind of had a falling out with that partner, and um, and what happened after that? I know that you, um, you kind of got to a point where you were on the brink of bankruptcy almost. So how did you get to that point? Yeah, so uh, you know, start with the conversation of of not being happy with the business that I was in back in uh, 2013, 2014. So 2014, I started having serious conversations with a, with a colleague that uh, had become a, uh, not just a great you know, colleague, but also a great friend of mine over the years. And we were in the same circles in terms of our niches and whatnot. And we saw each other pretty regularly, talked all the time about business and saw each other regularly at conferences and stuff like that. So we started talking about, you know, well, maybe we can... And sh- literally one of the other only other businesses in the United States that looked like mine where there was a full-fledged uh high quality divorce business doing forensic accounting, mediation, collaborative divorce, all that kind of stuff along with having a mature wealth management business. So we started talking about well how do we how can we do this on both coasts because this was she was on the east coast and I was on the west coast. How do we how can we potentially partner up and merge these two businesses across the coasts and so we, we agreed ultimately in 2014 to, to become partners. It kind of didn't really start off super smoothly relative to what my transition would look like. So we originally had been talking about me doing my jump from my existing firm to the new firm and becoming a partner um, with the, the advisor on the East Coast uh, between October and December of 2014. Um there were some compliance operational issues that postponed it and postponed it and postponed it. I kind of got to the point, well, February really of 2015, where I said to myself, I got to do this or it's not going to happen. So I left in mid-March of 2015, my old firm. I Mm -hmm. rented an office space in San Diego. I hired two employees, uh, an assistant financial planner and an operations administrative manager, and we opened the office. And the moment that I gave my resignation letter to my original firm, they Mm -hmm. did what I will simply call spilled blood in in the streets, Um, Mm -hmm. sent sent emails to every single person on my centers of influence list, every one of my clients, effectively saying that I'm no longer involved in the operations or management or anything of the businesses that I was still, by the way, a partner in that hadn't been resolved yet, but spilled blood in the streets, my my own attorney, uh, in fact, got the, the email and sent it to me. He was the first person to send it to me saying, what's going on here? So it kind of, it made a big you know, pile of something in the streets relative to uh, our attempt to amicably separate. Um, yeah. These guys that I left, my previous partners, were not people I didn't like. I just, in fact, one of them was like a, a father to me. So I wasn't I wasn't leaving because I didn't like them. It was because I needed to go someplace to get what I wanted out of my career, and it wasn't available there. But still, they spilled the blood in the streets, which really uh, negatively affected the divorce side of my business, which is all referral-based. It's all family law attorneys and mental health professionals and stuff making referrals to me 
to help their mm. clients. And once they see something like that, they're obviously a little bit less comfortable than they would have been a week or two before. So that yeah. really hurt me. I mean, I had to take a pay cut in the first place when I left the first firm to partner up in the second firm. Mm-hmm. And the my first set of partners actually sued me too after I left. Oddly enough, not for not for the wealth management business, but for the my my licensing business, which you just basically mentioned earlier before. But because I was licensing my my intellectual property from my divorce practice to other financial advisors around the country, and my the two gentlemen I was with initially were partners in that business, and we did a legitimate transfer of the intellectual property from our local three-member LLC to a national business that was basically licensed to sell franchises across the entire country. So it was a legitimate transfer that they signed on both sides of, but they sued me and accused me of fraudulent transfer of intellectual property from that transaction. They, they did make an attempt to go after some of my wealth management business, but I wouldn't say it was any sort of like massive you know, 15 people making phone calls to my clients kind of thing. Yeah. So it was, uh, it wasn't a big thing on that side, but they did sue me and I had to defend myself from it. So I'm in the midst of trying to start up a new business partnership while having to defend myself from a lawsuit, spending tens of thousands of dollars on my legal fees to defend myself from it. We did ultimately go to mediation to settle that. So it didn't have to get litigated, thankfully. But in the end, it was, you know, I, I leave for a reason they get upset about it. I start a new partnership. They continue to effectively potentially damage my ability to do business as I want to. During that time, this was call it March to October of 2015. I'm trying to get my my business up and running with my new partner. And we've got the new office open that I mentioned. I actually had to have uh, my two employees work from my apartment for two months because when I left in March, our office lease wasn't in place yet. So they worked mm, in my wow. tiny apartment with me for, for two months, and I, I had to drive to every client to get them to sign uh, paperwork to, to hire the new firm and such. But we eventually got into the new space, and uh, pro- call it, it was around my birthday, so around mid-April of 2015, we're in the new space. Everybody's happy. Everybody's good. And uh, I get to the point then where I'm defending myself from this lawsuit. I've lost most, if not all, of my revenue from the divorce business, which was about $10,000 a month that I lost just from that. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm essentially taking a, a $7,500 a month paycheck from the wealth management business. And my okay, alimony obligation is, yeah, which is $7,150. So I've got $350 a month worth of basically money that I can used to support my own expenses. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously fast forward to that. I'm in a position where I'm on the verge of bankruptcy. I I liquidated my entire 401k balances. I sold everything I had of value to be able to just pay basic bills. Um, The most important thing to me though, is that no matter what I pay my alimony obligation because that's for my kids, you know, which I, which I did. I was able to continue to do that. It was not easy, but <laughs> yeah. And so that meant, um, that you weren't able to pay your taxes for a couple of years, right. Uh, tr- you know, by prioritizing the alimony, those are, those are now on your record as well. And, uh, yeah. you know, you're almost done, you know, paying that back. Yeah. The taxes go back yeah, go even ahead. further than that. Yeah. The taxes go back even further than that though. Is it the, 
we, we ended up getting audited for the last two years that I was actually married to my second wife. And of course we were separated at the time. So I didn't get access to the records I needed to defend myself from said audit. So we had tens of thousands of dollars worth of additional taxes levied by the audit, um, which I had to take on and pay the entirety of. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I prioritized paying for my kids over paying my income taxes during the couple of years. I mean, 2015 for sure, 2016 and part of 2017 in order to meet my, my obligation to my family. I said, well, the only way I can do it is to not pay taxes. And of course, still, I got to pay the taxes and I'm going to, but then it results in penalties and interest and, and also disclosures, as you mentioned. So yeah, I have tax lien disclosures as well. And, you know, to the outside world, you look at my broker check and you see tax liens and a uh, default on, on debt and stuff. And if you don't ask for an explanation as to where those came from, you think that maybe I'm not the greatest guy, right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they don't really provide much ex room for explanation, right? Um, I mean. No, it's even smaller than a Twitter tweet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, what kind of got you through these tough times? I know, and I know you've, you know, you've sort of come back from it a bit. Um, you know, you've built, uh, you've gone out on your own. You started your, your new firm with Fonte and, and you've built up your book from, I know you started with 12 million and now you're at, you said about 98 million under management, which is great. And so I'm just wondering, you know, how did you sort of get through those tough times and, and build up your big business and come back from that? Yeah. So my, my second partner and I broke up basically in October of 2015. I started the new firm, Fonte Financial Advisors, as soon as I could. So we'll call it November 1st of 2015. I brought on a minority partner um, basically to fund my startup costs back then. She was already my partner in our national licensing business. She had actually worked for me in my, my San Diego uh, divorce business office for a couple of years sort of a career transitioner. She was a, is a CPA, was an auditor though for a big uh, accounting firm and wanted to get into working with people instead of working with corporations. So she had come and work for me in my, my business in San Diego for about a year and a half before relocating uh, back to where she came from, which, is, which was Denver. So she moved her family back to Denver. They actually still owned their house that they had there before they moved to San Diego. So easy, easy transition. Uh, and I told her when she left, she was worried that uh, uh, when she left San Diego that I wasn't going to want to be in business with her anymore on the divorce side of things. I'm like, absolutely not. You're going to open an office for us in Denver when you get there. You know, you know we're, we're doing this mm -hmm. licensing thing. We're spreading across the country. So, of course, she did. She uh, opened an office in, in Denver of the divorce business probably in 2000, late 2013, early 2014. So she was a little bit established there already by the time October, November of 2015 rolled around. And, you know, I was faced in October of 2015 with the concept of, well, I either have to have to take a job working for somebody else and not be self-employed anymore, mm -hmm. or I got to find somebody to partner with or somebody to bankroll the startup costs that I need because I had literally zero cash and was maxed out on every credit card, every potential available debt um, that mm. I could take on. So thankfully, yeah. my, my partner, Sandy, uh, was willing to step in and help with those startup costs. And so she is now my partner in Fonte. Uh, so Fonte has two physical offices in San Diego as well as in Denver. So we expanded beyond the divorce practice in Denver and have an office of the wealth management business there now too. 
Um, and she's my partner in our RIA that we're, we're registering as we speak. In fact, we filed our RIA registration with the SEC uh, last Friday. So oh, wow. Congratulations. 30, day, 30 days or so. Yeah, thank you. So in the next 30 days or so, we'll be, we'll be up and running with our own RIA. And yeah, as you said, when I first uh, broke up with the second partner, I had $12 million under management. And I went to a company called Advisory Services Network, which was great, actually. They were basically outsourced compliance and operation for operations for IARs. They're fully, fully supportive of me leaving at this stage, doing everything they can to help. So great for anybody who finds themselves in a situation like me where they got to leave someplace, but they don't have a ton of assets, so they can't go directly to a custodian. You know, find mm. somebody like Advisory Services Network to help out. But uh, mm. yeah, so... As you said, yeah, we're we're pushing a hundred million dollars at this point um, in terms of assets under management. Uh, most of it has been a direct result of our of our niche in in divorces, uh, working with people during divorces and just the natural uh, progression that they want to work with us after the fact too. And I, yeah, I'd say that probably. Niche. Yeah, I mean, we're at probably eighty. I mean, not a great, not a great life life event, but. <laughs> You know, right. very, very lucrative for the wealth management industry. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. I mean, obviously, you know, as you follow my story, I was in that business before I actually got divorced myself, but my parents were divorced. My parents went through a nasty divorce, which is what got me ambitious about helping people through it. Um, and, you know, you fast forward through it, and now it's, uh, I have true empathy because I've been through it myself. And, you know, I, I don't think that people need to have empathy for others having been divorced like they've gone through it themselves. To help people in divorces, but literally is the biggest financial transaction of most people's lives. And the, unfortunately, the cliche still exists that most women in a marriage don't know where their money is, don't know how the money is earned, don't have control of the money. And a lot of our work is about leveling that playing field and giving them a sense of security and removing ambiguity and, and fear of the future to make them comfortable with being able to finalize their divorce. And in order to do that, you got to show them what the future looks like. So we we're literally talking to them about their financial future before they are even close to getting divorced. And it, I think it just it gives a sense of of security and connection and trust and whatnot that yeah is really hard to to rival in any other sort of niche in the financial advisory world. Yeah, well, I just think it's there's such a need for that, and. You know, I know that a lot of advisors out there have money problems like yourself. It's everybody does, right? And it's just because you're a financial advisor doesn't mean that these things don't come up for you and 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 kind of haunt you. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, are there any lessons that you learned from these experiences? Um, you know, things that you would uh, tell other financial advisors who might be in the similar uh, similar spot. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, talk first about what what did actually what effect it actually has on my business today. Um, I, I will tell you, I have not ever had a single client or a prospective client look at my broker check and ask me questions about why things are on there mm. or how they got there or anything like that. So, from that perspective, I don't think it has negatively affected my business. I will say that yeah, it costs me a lot of time and money to be able to do such basic things as getting registered in a state that I'm trying to do business in, uh, as well as to maintain my CFP designation. So I got my CFP before I got securities license. So a very important thing to me. You know, I got, in, I got my CFP in 2006. I went through one of the first bachelor's degree programs in the United States at a major university that fulfilled the requirement to take the CFP exam. 
I have spent probably 60 hours writing letters and putting together backup documentation for the CFP board mm. to explain to them what all of this stuff is in my disclosures. Yeah. And they're not, no offense to the CFP board, but especially during COVID, they're not quick with things. Yeah. So sure. a lot of this has gone on through COVID. So I'm sending them 75 or 100 pages worth of letters and documents to explain what's going on, waiting for their response. It takes six months or longer for them to fully respond to what I've sent them. So it's a, it's a lot of my time and, it, and it's money. And I have had a couple of states refuse to license me because of the things that are in my disclosures. Luckily, they're not the two states that I do most of my business in, but a couple of states have said no. I mean, if you've, you have to show to us that you're solvent, which I do. That's not a problem. I am solvent. But you have to show us that all of these debt problems that you have are not going to affect your business because, of course, they're doing their jobs and protecting um, their citizens from somebody who potentially will do wrong by them, which I'm not, obviously. I just have had these problems in my past. So I've had to realize the fact that there are a couple of states that just plain don't want me to be licensed there and go through the hoops and go through the costs of applying for licenses and still having them denied, which, you know, again, it's me you know, taking my penance for the mistakes that I made in the past, which I can't take away. But I would say that other than that, the time and the money associated with those things, I wouldn't say that it really has affected me long term as far as the success of my business. Yes, there were those couple of moments where people left because they thought, you know, I moved twice in six months, lost $20 million worth of clients on the second move because they thought it looked not necessarily suspicious, but uh, unstable, I guess, maybe. So... There was certainly those hiccups. I'd be, I'd have more AUM now than I do if those things hadn't happened. But again, we've grown from 12 million to almost 100 million in five and a half years. So we're doing really well. Got no complaints about that. Um, what I've learned from all of this stuff, as I said very early on, I think that the most important thing is that I wasn't taking my own advice for years, for, for a decade at least. I wasn't taking my own advice. I wasn't, you know, committing myself to pay attention to my finances when I was married for the second time, to not overextending myself when I got divorced for the second time. I was doing it for what I thought were the right reasons, and I still think are the right reasons, trying to support my family and be generous and take the high road and all that stuff. But in the end, you know, I, I honestly, I would have told a client of mine not to do that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I don't, I didn't take my own advice. Even if I uh, encouraged a client to go down that path, I would have built in some sort of fail safe so that in the event, everything goes to, to hell, uh, sorry, heck, whatever. Um, you, you have a, you have a way out. You can curse it, on you know? here. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have a backdoor out of it at least, which I, I didn't do for myself. And you know, it, it, the, even the more basic things, like I, I'm a business owner. I haven't had a CPA that actually gives me tax advice for like five years. They prepare my tax returns, but they don't say, hey, Justin, if you make this change, you can pay less in taxes. Like simply setting myself up with a minimum level of income to appease the IRS from my business, paying the self-employment taxes and whatnot, and then everything over and above that, pay myself as a non-self-employment taxed income, no one told me to do that until I finally got to the point where I had the time to sit down and research it myself. I could have saved 
20 plus thousand dollars just last year if someone had told me that. Yeah. Wow. Just in self-employment taxes. And it's such a basic thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, Justin, we're, we're just about out of time. I, I wish we could uh, talk about this all day, but I'd like to thank you, Justin, for being on the podcast. And I know it was, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about some of these, you know, really uh, personal things and hard, hard things that you went through. So I, I really appreciate you opening up about them. Yeah, my pleasure. And if you'd like to reach out to Justin, um, or if you have any questions for him, him, excuse me, you can reach him at jreckers at fontefinancial.com. And we'll put this in the, the show notes below. If you yourself have a struggle and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at transparencywithdianab at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.